Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, this is Alana Thompson with Palette Exposure, and I have a very special guest today. I've been looking forward to this interview immensely. I've been very, very fortunate to run into Joe Anderson throughout my wine writing career at various events and happenings, specifically at Sonoma County Wine Auction, and I've always admired him from afar. This is my opportunity to have a quality conversation and for you guys to listen in. I know that you learn a lot and you'll be inspired. I have no doubt about that. Joe Anderson, of course, is uh, a chairman and a co-founder of a very famous winery called Benovia um, that has not only beautiful portfolio of wines, but some of the best, um, you know, Grand Cru vineyards in Sonoma County. So that's a big, big part of who Joe is and his prowess. But there's so much more to uncover. I cannot wait to get started, Joe. Welcome. Oh, it's so great to be with you, Alona. It's too bad we can't do this in person like we've done so many times, drinking great wine and solving the world's problems. You know what I mean? Yes, you guys can't see it, but Joe has a beautiful burgundy-shaped glass with some brand-new released Chardonnay in it, and I am a little jealous, but we'll pick that in short order. Um, next time, we'll be talking wine and drinking wine. We're recording, of course, in the time of COVID and the epidemic, according to all the press that I'm reading, has been respiking, which is not good news, but eventually that too will resolve itself. And of course, a lot of civil unrest, a lot of social issues. I cannot think of a better person to have this discussion in this tumultuous time than Joe. Uh, there's much that he's experienced with his career and um, throughout his life, really. Um, Joe, of course, is also very well known for his charitable work, and he owns an airplane, which we'll talk about at the end of the discussion, um, because that's, well, it's really a centerpiece of what he's been doing lately. But we'll start, as I like to do, from the beginning, um, and Joe remarkably comes from very humble beginnings. Um, he actually, once upon a time, early in life, working as a butcher is that right that's correct yeah it's uh you know i grew up in arizona uh, yeah i'm a third generation native of there and both my mom and dad were uh, you know my dad was a, a blue car collar worker before the war as a machinist for Phelps dodge and my mom was a school teacher and and uh you know they got married and and after the war my dad became a, a state employee working for the employment service and my mom pretty much raising us kids uh, until I was the youngest. Um, and so, uh, you know, she she started teaching again when I was in the third grade. And uh, and she did that just for a few years. Uh, but, you know, my dad was a state employee, didn't make a lot of money. And, uh, uh, but I was blessed to have the parents I had and my siblings. And uh, we had a very fun life. And you talk about being a meat cutter. I was going to a Jesuit high school in Arizona uh, and my parents were trying to fund that, and that was at that time was a lot of money. It was uh, three hundred dollars a year. So after my sophomore year, they said they couldn't afford it anymore. So I went and got a job. You know, I thought I was going to be a package boy at a, meat, at a local grocery store, and they needed a cleanup boy in the meat department. And uh, 
So I started doing that, and you know, a year and a half later, I was a meat cutter, and that's how I worked my way through my last year of high school and, and most of my college career to pay for my school. Um, and uh, everything that has happened to me like that has always benefited me. You know, learning to work with your hands and, and uh, meeting great people and, and uh, uh, just being blessed along the way with uh, good friends and job opportunities and, and uh, things that, that uh, popped up. And, and uh, you know, as you said, I'm, I've been very successful, but, you know, I've been also very lucky in, in the right place at the right time. And uh, it's, it's a, a fabulous, fabulous life. And uh, we're glad to be alive today. You know, as you, as you said in your intro, we're in some pretty tough times right now. And, uh, but I think that, uh, especially here in Sonoma, you know, we're Sonoma strong. Yes, so there's been a lot that happened to the country and to the wine country specifically, a lot of adversity that occurred even in the very recent history. Um, and I'm sure that considering you had such an amazing life experience, you were probably better prepared than most. Again, we just talked about your very humble beginnings. You worked your butt off, basically, right. when you were a kid and a teenager. And, um, you know, I, I have to ask you before we move on, that skill set of being uh, a butcher, are you a cook? Do you love oh, yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mary's a wonderful baker. Her cooking skills are, she's like my mother. My mother's a wonderful baker, but her cooking skills were not the best. But Mary's got that Irish cooking, baking skills. And let me tell you, talking about pandemic pounds, you know, we've been isolated here on the ranch, which is a beautiful place to be isolated at and blessed to have that. But I mean, she's baking her apple pies and cookies. And, and uh, my granddaughter from Washington, D.C., and her husband came there. She's a great cook. And oh, my goodness. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, that's, uh, I love to cook and I love to eat and, uh, but it's, uh, uh, I just had to ask before we delve into some more serious matters because I love to cook as well. And I just had this image when we're talking about your early beginnings about all the cooking you must be doing during quarantine and how amazing your house probably smells every day. So oh, yes. I just had this flash in my mind. That's great. It's <laughs> I mean, we, we had 13 people here. I mean, my, uh, my three children were here part-time and my grandchildren and we were full up and as, as traumatic as it was, it was a blessing. I mean, think about it. Sitting around a table, three generations. Wow. Uh, sitting around a table, you know, grandpa doing grandpa school, the grandkids, because, uh, you know, grandpa school was always fun. You know, they always had fun when they went to school with grandpa, but it was a blessing having my grandchildren here from ages six to 28 and uh, uh my children here you know uh it was just a blessing you're sitting around a table of 13 people and multiple generations and everybody's helping out and having conversations and you know, we used to have when we were when we were kids you know sitting around with cousins and stuff like that so as tough as it was and as terrifying as these times are it was a real blessing uh and it really created additional bonds for our family it's uh it will, I will always remember it uh, with some trepidation, but also with fondness and love that we were able to to do that. And my son and his uh, wife and, and son are coming back up uh, to come in on Saturday, and they'll be here for a month. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, That's probably one of the few silver linings, but a powerful one from the pandemic. It gave us a space, both physically, meaning that we were stuck, 
um, but also mentally created that room because it wasn't populated with other things and responsibilities. So we were able to spend time with family and exactly. exactly. Know how nurturing you are. That had to have been so special. It was. It was so special, and you know, uh, it was special because you know they're all such loving kids and grandkids. And you know, I'm seven years old, kind of be can kind of be grumpy old grandpa at times. But, uh, you know, it was just uh, a joy to be able to experience that. And it would never happen without this, without this uh, terrible pandemic. And so, you know, whenever you have a challenge, remember there's always some, something on the bright side. That uh, if you're open to it and open your heart, it's going to be there. And uh, don't be over, overwrought with uh, the tragedies uh, that are out there. You know, deal with them, but also be open to the love that's going to happen, you know. Those are powerful words. This is truly a teachable moment in human history. Yes. I think the universe, or depending on what you believe in, or God, is trying to teach us something. And I think it's the onus is on us to actually step back and listen mm -hmm. and process it so that history repeats. Pandemics happen before. Unfortunately, the likelihood is they will show up again. Yes. How we survive and thrive is what you describe, that piece of it as humans is something that we do have control over. We do have a hand in that. Because it's in our minds and hearts. Um, I was um, studying your biography a little bit. Um, and I, I was always wondering where it came from in the past when I saw you as, you know, you've created more charities and you're an active participant in more than I can even name. And I was wondering where that came from, that spirit because at the end of the day, it comes from deep within, you know? It does. Um, your upbringing makes sense. Your parents clearly have raised you with fantastic set of values and you come from a loving family. And you wound up working for the government agency, correct? And that I did, yeah, 17 years I worked for yeah. the state of Arizona. But at the beginning, it came from family. And, you know, my parents were, you know, uh, they were depression, you know, people and, uh, um, but you know my my grandparents and my great grandmother. I mean, you you learn this. You know, uh, I'll go all the way back. Uh, my great grandmother was uh, well. There's a little town called Ashfork, Arizona. It's just west of Flagstaff. It's on Route 66, and it was founded in 18 uh, about 1880. My my great grandmother and and her husband were uh, part of the team building the Atlantic Pacific Railroad, and and they ended up staying at Ashfork because the horses were still on, they couldn't go any further. He was a timekeeper. And so they created a little community, them and others, called Ashwork. And then she was a Irish woman, stood about four foot 10. She ended up being kind of the nurse midwife for this little community. And in 1892, 18, there was a diphtheria pandemic hit this little town. And, and uh, she, of course, uh, went out and took care of the kids and others. And so of course she you know, brought the, back to her house and she lost five of her own children. Um, what a powerful, extraordinary example to grow up with. I mean, that sets the foundation. It does, right there. <laughs> and so my mom and dad taught me, you know, through stories like that, but through their, their actions of, you know, making sure you're taking care of not only yourself, but others who are less fortunate. Even when we didn't have a lot of money, we were always helping others. And, and it just is a way of life. And my education, both from the good sisters of 
St. Joseph Pond in the Grammar World Catholic Grammar School in Prescott to I went to a Jesuit high school in Phoenix. And uh, and the Jesuits teach you you're a man for others. Now they've made it right to you're a person for others, but at that time it was all boys' school and still is, but you're a man for others and and uh, the Catholic Church social teaching um, is is very powerful. Uh, and and so that was ingrained to me ever since I was in grammar school, high school, and it's been you know a big part of a big part of my life and, and Mary's life too. She grew up in a little farming community in, in Wisconsin, and uh, that just becomes part of your DNA. And so it's I don't want to say it's, it's natural, but it, it's when it's that part of you, it's always there. It's always there. Wow. Um, speaking about foundational, I, I really feel like right now we're on shaky ground and everything is lopsided and upside down. And I think for you and for people such as yourself that absorbed so much of it early on, it's so important and so useful to get through the times where you cannot make any sense out of things. I think they're just good old fashioned values that our society desperately needs. And I am a little bit disheartened because I think we deviated from that. Um, I know in schools, and I would love to hear your opinion on it, they just don't teach history anymore. They don't. They don't. Uh, um, and, and some of the history they teach is, as you know, we now know is kind of false news as the current president likes to talk about some of the things we were taught in school. We now find out we're, you know, we're propaganda for different uh, purposes. Uh, whether it's uh, the history of the African Americans in our country, and and that uh, you know we now know that uh, much of that of what we were taught was was not correct, and what what that people went through uh, in this country, and the people who tried to help them along, uh, who stood up for them, were, were dealt with harshly, uh, all the way back to General Grant. You know, I, we were taught in school he was the most corrupt you know, president in the history of the United States. Well, that was because that's the textbooks. It said, and the textbooks came from the South. And he, you read his autobiography and you watch this new series out on Grant that he was a hell of a gentleman and, and he understood what was right and uh, and how to treat people. And so, you know, hopefully one of these days he'll get the credit of being the excellent president that he was and leader. And I grew up in the 60s, you know. Um, and so I'm of an age in the, in the late 60s, you know, we were in college and, and uh, you know, my brother and I were big supporters of Bobby Kennedy, and uh, uh, you know, uh, and so in '68, which I thought until this year was the worst year of my life. Wow. Yeah. With uh, Martin Luther King getting killed and Kennedy getting killed, and yeah. you know, reflecting back on when JFK got killed, and you sit there, and uh, you know, uh, it was uh, traumatic times, and we all had a lot of hope, and that hope ended with those assassinations. But we're here we are today, and uh, but we never lost focus. We never lost, lost focus that you got to continue your life and do what you can and do it fairly, do it honestly, treat people with respect, uh, and, uh, uh, and and keep going because you know you can't change the national scene. Uh, you can change your life and you can change people around you, but you know we we as depressed as I have been uh, over the late 60s um, but you know as, as we can get very depressed today when we see the uh, the rise of the right you know um, and, and that type of thing you know 
You just hold, hold steady. Hold your family close, hold your friends close. Understand that uh, good will win out over evil. Uh, and we just have to do it every day, every single day. Consistency indeed, and hold yourself accountable. Exactly. Be exactly. Right. Who you are. You know, a lot right. of people worry about greater good while not doing well by ourselves right. and our families. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, and it really ties into the story of, you know, all my career, whether I was in the state government or when we started our own company that we had for 23 years, mm -hmm. is we're always, you know, other focused. We're always involved in the communities, the communities that we were involved in, and uh, figuring out how we can help others. Uh, you know, you know, you're successful, and with that becomes a burden to make sure you're using your success to continue uh, to help others and, and not to think that your success is because you're so damn smart. And, you know, I, I always told people, you know, um, some of, I had some, uh, you know, uh, minority investors in my company when we, we finally sold and they said, how'd you do it? You know, it was amazing. And, and you know, cause they profited a lot. And I said, well, there's three, there's three markers of success and you only need two of them. Good looking, lucky and smart. And I said, you guys are blessed because I was good looking. I am good looking and I'm lucky. You know, a lot of, a lot of times you get, you get the sense and you get the temptation to think it's you. And if it's, it's the people you bring around you and the kind of persona that you want your company to exhibit is a, a good part of it. And we've always done that. Whether it was Shower Anderson, my, my healthcare company, or Benovia, you know, it's, uh, yeah, or successful business, but you know, that's not enough. That's what are we doing for the community? So obviously the hallmarks of a successful leader is what you just described. You surround yourself with capable people, and then you get to take some of the credit, but in a sense that makes you intelligent. Yes. The fact that you know, you recognize other people's talent and galvanize it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that uh, I've got some, as you know, bright people, and, and you know, uh, Mike Sullivan is probably one of the finest wine makers in in, uh, in California, and he's a humble guy, and he makes beautiful wines, and uh, you know, uh, we have beautiful vineyards, a lot of hard work, and a lot of dough went into those, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's what you invest in, and uh, so Joe, of course, is being his signature humble self, but what he was describing is a company that he created that was scaled. I mean, it was basically revolutionizing health healthcare system in Arizona that was then transferred onto other states. Sure. And eventually purchased by Aetna. Mm -hmm. um, and that's no small feat. I know no. when you mentioned your investors, I mean, my ones made a lot of money and were very impressed. That is really quite something. Yeah, three of us got started, and 23 years later, we had 2,000 employees operational in eight states. And it was a very rewarding business um, for us, uh, and and it was rewarding because you were taking care of people, and your healthcare. <clears throat> and the trust that our clients had in us. Yet today, <clears throat> look at this pandemic. Yeah. Who do you trust? Yeah, we had a company that 
our clinicians, and we were all trusted. And and we built we built that. Excuse me. Um, uh, can you hold it just a second? No worries, absolutely. No worries. Bobby Bird. There's oh, a pocket dial. I'm gonna turn this off. So anyway, um, and so while while I was in that business, you know, I was always putting myself and our team is we're taking care of these people. Yeah, we run insurance products and this type of thing, but the, it's always is the patient getting the right care. And, you know, we found that the quality care was the cheapest care because they got the service at the right time. And, you know, all the people on my team from Doc Schaller, who I found the company with, to my chief medical officers, you know, uh, Colleen Kilbohan, who's now at UCSF, and uh, Art Pelberg. You know, we were always a clinical company, taking care of people. And we had we had business practices and systems that helped facilitate that. And I always thought of my great-grandmother doing that. Wow. Always. That was our responsibility, you know. And so today, when we look at what our healthcare system is dealing with, uh, they don't have a partner in government, I'm sorry to say. They're out there on their own. Uh, and they're fighting all of and anything we can do to help them out, uh, do that, uh, is is incredible. And they're courageous people uh, on the front line taking care of these very, very sick people. Uh, many times without the equipment that they should have to do it. And, uh, uh, but, you know, there's the courage right there. And uh, whatever we can do to back them up and help them uh, is important. As, as you talked earlier about what we're doing for our, our veterans and it's the same it's the same thing it's just taking people where they're at and how you can help them move along uh, is, is just part of the DNA that I inherited and part of it I, I cultivated and expanded on my own with, with my family and, and that uh, and I think that's what life is about if, if we can continue to do that and uh, look outward you know, to help folks, and as you said earlier so so wisely, is don't forget the inner part. Because if you constantly forget the inner part, and you're always out there doing stuff for other people, you're going to find yourself pretty out of balance. I'm starting to wonder why you weren't tapped to be healthcare secretary, regardless of the administration. You clearly made, made it happen. Um, what everyone is struggling with, especially now, I mean, the broken healthcare system, that doesn't serve people well and lacks in trust severely. I mean, when you just said the words, the best care, the highest quality care is the most cost effective, that's pretty mind blowing. Yeah, well, we have, we have a mis in this country, we think that the best is the most expensive and that is exactly wrong uh, because the financial incentives in our healthcare system got so skewed. Uh, and so the most expensive many, many times is not the best. And uh, you know, we, we as a country have missed the boat and we need to continue to work on that. Uh, we've had some, we've, we've had, there, there's examples out there, the work we were able to do both in Arizona and nationally, you know, uh, Romney care in Massachusetts is an excellent system. Yep. I mean, it is a model for the country and, and the, you know, the uh, Obama administration took parts of that to try to implement it. Uh, but I would still point people, and I would put his name in front of Romney Care. It was a, it's a great healthcare system. Just look at the health status in Massachusetts and the cost of Massachusetts. It really works. Uh, and 
And so this is not a partisan issue. This is a, you know, if you get a bipartisan support for something like that, get rid of the rhetoric, the stupid rhetoric out there. Uh, it, it really is something. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm past being a, a secretary, uh, you know, that stuff. Now I've done, you know, I've done a lot in healthcare and I've been privileged to do it. Uh, you know, my last uh, mission was working for the Archdiocese in New York on their board for their, their uh, uh, healthcare system. Uh, they had, you know, 25% of the nursing home beds in Manhattan. Uh, and uh, they were just devastated. I, I still, I'm not on the board anymore. I, I serve my tour of duty there, but I stay in touch. And they were just absolutely devastated by some bad state decisions, uh, by not having the equipment they needed, uh, uh, you know, providing the best care. Uh, it just, but they were just, I was on the phone with the CEO yesterday, just a, a wonderful person, wonderful human being. And, you know, they're hanging on by a thread, uh, you know, and, you know, the old saying, the work of the Lord, I mean, that's what they're doing. And, you know, I was proud to be part of that system and help, you know, then develop their strategic plan to get their balance, their finances all squared away. But, you know, uh, you look at those people and what they're doing out there, they're not getting any credit for it. And uh, all you're going to do is toot their horn and, and uh, say, don't forget them. And, uh, but again, what we've learned, we have learned that what we thought in these congregate living systems uh, were a good thing. And now we know that there's a complete, Disadvantage to whether you're on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific or in a nursing home in New York City. If you're if you don't have a you don't have a uh, a residence that's designed to handle these kind of things, you end up being it's like my grandmother bringing the diphtheria back to her home. How about that? Unintended consequences. So now we know we know that we as a country have to figure out for our seniors a different way of doing it. You know. Uh, these big congregate systems, you know, are not, they need to be redesigned, more open space and private rooms. And, you know, we, we pioneered uh, care of the long-term care people at home uh, in Arizona in, in the program that, that I designed and, and negotiated for the state with the federal government. And it is yet today. 80% of the people in long-term care in Arizona are home. They're not in a nursing home. Thank God. Most of the other states, you know, 80% of the people are in a nursing home. So, you know, we proved in Arizona in those systems that we helped design, we can take care of people at home and, and have congregate sites that are safe. Uh, but, you know, we did that 30 years ago. How about that? 30 years ago. Uh, and, and it's, 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 severely and we are on serious notice because we're losing lives as a result. But what do you think can be done in the immediate basis and on the national basis to figure this out as quickly as possible to start you know, on the right path? Because we're clearly on that. Well, we're, we're, we're now in, in, the, in, the, in the crisis mode. You know, you have somebody emergency response to stop the bleeding, right? Yeah. Well, you got to yeah, stop the bleeding. We're not going to be able to, you know, do this on a dime. And so, you know, we have to do, let's first talk about the, this pandemic, you know, you gotta listen to the, you gotta listen to the doctors. You gotta listen to Fauci. Don't listen to the politicians. Oh God, no. Don't listen to the politicians. 
And I've, I've yeah. said that I've, I was in government for 17 years and I worked with him for another 25, so I'm four years of government. Don't listen to the politicians, listen to the clinicians. Um, and I look at my, my home state today, you know, Arizona, it's on, the hospitals are full. You know, they decided, the governor decided that, you know, well, we're just gonna open. There's no requirement to wear masks. You know, it's, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll criticize Governor Ducey was, did a disservice to the citizens of Arizona. And they need to have masks, you know, and, but you know, it's because of politics, it's not, you're not man if you're wearing a mask. Where in the hell did that bullshit come from? Pardon my French. No, you, you tell us, Joe. And so, and so, you know, we got to coalesce around, you know, we got to stop this pandemic. We don't need to be shut down. We just need to have people wear masks, social distance. Mm -hmm. You're going to, you're going to have some spread, but I was in, just to give you an interesting example, I was over in Fairfield, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm training in my old, uh, you know, little camp with Mary going to new and I walked up there and Mary and I show up on our mask and this guy walks salesman walks out without a mask. He said, if you don't mask up, we're going, we're going to go find someplace else. Oh my God. And I went in this place and everybody dealt with me was masked. We stayed, but I was here in California, people sitting across the desk, negotiating a contract to buy some kind of RV or something, no mask. They go, these people are crazy. I mean, this is a deadly, deadly disease. The statistics in Arizona are the hospitalization rate, the highest populated group, ages 24 to 44. So the same, you don't get it if you're, you know, baloney. I mean, children are dying of this disease. And, and just because it hit the most vulnerable in nursing homes, so we said, oh, it's just the elderly. No, no, this, this, this pandemic, this virus doesn't care if you're 10 or 100. You know, get in your system and it will screw you up or kill you. Even if you recover from it, you're going to be damaged for the rest of it. And we're playing like it. It's a political issue. This is a healthcare issue. You know, it, it really is devastating. Um, what you say is true. It's, it's hardly political. It touches across um, all ages, social groups, you know, economic groups. I mean, it's not anyone's disease is all of us. And so we just, so what I say, so by example, I told these people, you're not going to get any business with me without a mask. So they masked up and we did our business and we washed our hands and, and we left. And so, but if everybody would do that, if everybody would take that responsibility in this country, forget what the politicians tell you, just do what's right. It would heal itself. It's, it has to be a ground movement, you know, just walk in, that's who you are. You get people stare at you. So what? Just, you know, and I, I was at a restaurant, you know, we went to a restaurant the other night, Kennedy's up in, uh, up in Geyserville, great food. Nice. <laughs> and, and outside, they had that beautiful patio house and everything was set up right. And there was this group of six that came in and some young people. Here comes a guy about 30 years old, walking by with his mask in his pocket. Uh -huh. And so I didn't So he got up again, came walking by. And I looked up at him, we're all wearing our masks. I said, mask up. I went like this and his mask on, gave me a dirty look. Do I care he gave me a dirty look? He could have walked by somebody else who didn't have a mask on, who didn't, you know, have to have him here at the table. I mean, people just got to think about what they're doing. And, uh, and we just got to do it. I'm, 
you know, just, hey, this is, you know, keeping every, each other safe. And if we think about we're keeping each other safe, then we'll arrest this, this pandemic until we can come up with a, a treatment or a vaccine. Again, hold yourself accountable. Those of you guys that yeah. are listening, those are wise words. If we just do one, one thing and practice it religiously, don't let yourself off the hook. No. Easy to get complacent, and complacency kills. It does, and you know everyone wants to blame this person or that person. No, no, just take responsibility for yourself, and make sure your family's doing the same thing. And you know you're not going to affect what they do, but maybe if enough of us do what's right, by that example, we'll get more and more people, we'll save more and more people's lives. Absolutely. Well, um, considering how much value you've created for the world. And we'll talk about it more, but I just want to point out almost a couple thousand employees, the jobs that you created in your company. Okay. Um, you've already lived an extraordinary business life where your acumen was on full display and benefited so many at large and also individual employees and such like that. But obviously that wasn't enough. There's so much more to your life story. And I know you were spending time in the wine country with Mary and enjoying it. And um, I guess decided to work some harvests at some point. Um, which is yeah, we came, we came up here, it, well, it was 2002 and, and Mary and I were riding bikes and we came up here to do the Santa Rosa Century, which is now the wine country century or something. And, and uh, I went back to Phoenix and I was talking to some friends and they said, well, you know, I, I used to help Bert Williams, you know, at Selling at Harvest, why don't you come up and, you know, spend a week or so and, and, uh, cause you know, uh, Bert's daughter has a little winery over in Dry Creek. And so I came up and Mary did had a wonderful week, you know, doing punch downs at midnight and, and uh, with Brogan Sellers, Margie, uh, William Waringa. And I was a cab guy. I didn't know Pino from the Pope, honestly, God. And so, uh, you know, Mary and I, Joey Phelps, uh, aficionados and people like that. And, and this older gentleman come out of the fresh pad at night and show up and, and uh, I'd be out there doing punch downs at 10 o'clock or midnight, you know, drinking some great wine. And, and you know, I got to know the guy. Uh, and he introduced himself as Bert. And I said, well, I'm Joe. I didn't know who Albert Williams was. Legendary. Legendary. I didn't know who Bert was. I didn't know what that was. And, uh, and so I just, he was just a very nice gentleman, uh, a little curmudgeonly, and, and that's okay. But you could tell he just loved the wine, and he would talk about it. And, uh, you know, I think towards the end of the week I was there, we were sitting down one night about 10 o'clock, and he goes, he says, well, you seem to like the wine business, Joe. So, yeah, I love this up here. I said, Hillsburg reminds me of Prescott, where I grew up. And he said, well, there's this, there's, he said, there's this piece of property that's been on the market and now off. He said, I used to make wine from there. Um, and, uh, and so he brought me a bottle of the Cone Vineyard Pinot, 1993. So the bottle was nine years old. This is 2002. And I drank that wine. I felt like St. Paul getting knocked off a horse on the way to Damascus. I'd never tasted anything like that, ever. And it was just, it was, it was just amazing. Um, and so, Mary and I came back up a couple of weeks later. We hired a, a real estate guy and the property had been taken off the market. You know, we got in to take a look at it and, uh, you know, we were able to buy it. And, uh, um, 
And that's where my house is today. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.